0: So we'll start with the lecture verse. The unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect truth is seldom met with, even in a hundred thousand Mario Kalpas. Now we can see and hear it. We can remember and accept it. I vow to make the Buddha's truth one with myself. Homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dharma, homage to the Sangha. My talk today is titled, Sewing the Thread of Openness and Stillness. Where I'll start is that we think we know what's going on in our lives through our thoughts and ideas and feelings. And what I'd like to do today is to give you some illustrations that perhaps that's not entirely true that we really don't know all that's going on with us or all that's going on with the conditions that we find ourselves in. The way I like to do things is to use stories to illustrate my point. So I have a story. This one is about the middle way. And I don't know if you have all, most of you probably heard the Buddhist term, the middle path. Well, this was a story about what I experienced up in this very loft here, uh, trying to take the Buddhist teachings into my daily practice. So I was up in the loft, and we have a great big gong, big gong, big striker, and it's nice to make a nice noise, right? Yeah, well, I, uh, in the past I have told myself, you know, you're not very good at that. You're not very consistent. And I thought, yeah, that's probably true. But I said, okay, well, what's the middle way here? What is the Buddhist teaching of hitting the gong just right? And I said, well, I don't know. (laughs) Because I didn't know how to bring the teaching to the moment, at that moment. So I thought, well, I bet one thing is I could look at how I struck it. So when I hit it too hard... I would immediately criticize myself and go, that was awful, that was too harsh, okay. But then immediately I go to the other extreme, I hit it so softly that nobody can hear, okay. I said, there's gotta be a middle way. But I was pretty tense and my my thoughts were dictating in a way what I was doing. And I thought, okay, well the Buddha taught the middle way, what does that mean right now in this situation? And so I said, I don't know. So I just relaxed and I said, okay, we're getting ready for another gong strike. What am I gonna do? And I said, I don't really know. So I just had to stop and just say, okay. (laughs) Basically, I need to hit the gong. I can't get out of it or I don't wanna get out of it. And so I just relaxed and uh, let go of those thoughts that were dictating my actions. And what happened is um, I struck the gong, and quite frankly, it wasn't a big deal, and I didn't do it perfectly. And I thought, isn't that grand, because that's also another dictation is perfect. And I thought, I just hit hit it. That's all I did, simple action, and I was more relaxed, and I enjoyed it just a little tiny bit now. And I felt like it was, it was a good enough sound that it would give people direction, like this is when the celebrant needs to go up to the altar and return, and then I had to hit it again. And it's not like I did anything terribly different, but I believe I was looking for putting the truth into practice with the Buddha was teaching about the middle way, and I was doing my best to do that. So the idea is that the middle way isn't a perfection. That's part of it. The other part of it is, okay, well, I had to hit the gong again. So I thought, I don't know what to do. You know, here I am again. So I just hit it again. And what I'm trying to point out with this story is that the middle way has to be found each and every instant. The middle way has to be found within changing conditions that are often uh, hard to understand, hard to um, know what to do. So that's one of my stories. So I still feel, you no, know, I can judge myself as much as I want to. <laughs> we, all, we all have that liberty. You know. <laughs> but I thought, you know, I don't need to do that so much anymore. I can just hit the gong and make that my offering and be okay with that. Now, here's another story that I found in a book I was reading that I really like. Story. Um, in this story, let's see, this story is about it's a, a journal written about a group of people that went into the Himalayas to do uh, an expedition in uncharted uh, territory. And so they, the, where they were was really difficult. It was super steep. You know, the Himalayas, if any of you have been there, the mountains aren't just hills, but they are uh, sheer walls that go up. You probably you, know, you already know this, that go up like thousands of feet. And so they were in this uncharted territory walking through a lot of forests that were really tangly with rhododendrons and all different kinds of, you know, Difficult things to work with. There were no trails, and there were leeches. Okay, lots of leeches. So this was not a fun, you know, trip. It wasn't one of the, not a, fun, a trip of comfort. So here's what the author says: When part of the group, they had a number of people that were uh, trying to navigate this um, area, and with them was a llama. He had tagged on to the group and decided that he wanted to, you know, go along for the trip. Okay. So off they go. And so here they're tromping through day after day, trying to find their way. And here's an excerpt from his journal. He says, I pray I can read this. Today was a particularly ba- particularly bad day for me, as the rain would not let up and the leeches were relentless. I gotta just make sure I can read this. Okay. At one point, I counted 22 of them sucking on me at the same time. Sloshing, this is making a point. This was not an easy situation. Sloshing along the muddy trail in the pouring, pounding rain, I came upon a large, slimy log that had fallen chest high across our brush-choked path. In my agitated state, I viewed the log as a menace, an obstacle, that was clearly separate, separating me in my way and against me. With no way under or around, I jumped stomach first and slid over the top. Regaining my balance on the other side, I was infuri- infuriated at the mud and decaying mush that seemed to have covered the entire front of my body. Rubbing off the crud, I cursed the log and the relentless rain. It was my brother Todd who suggested that we wait and see how the llama would handle this formidable imp- imp- impediment. Surely the rest would—surely the test would break him. Okay. So hiding off, off the trail, we—sorry, I just have a hard time reading sometimes. Hiding off the trail, we peeked through the underbrush just in time to see him trudge up to the log. Ever smiling, he took a couple of steps back and tried his jump with a running start. With not having enough momentum, coupled with a portly belly, he did slide back on the same side of the log and landed on his back in a large puddle. Shaking his rain-drenched head, he burst into spasms of uproarious laughter. <laughs> okay. Staggering to his feet, He repeated the same maneuvers and the same results. Three times he did this, okay? With each collapse back into the puddle, his laughter grew stronger and louder. On his fourth attempt, he made it over the the top and slid headlong right into the muddy puddle on the other side. Again, his laughter was knee-slapping. Continuing to chuckle, he wiped himself off as best he could, lovingly patted the log as though it were a dear friend, and proceeded up the trail smiling. Todd and I, the author and his friend, just stared at each other. (laughs) So different, same situation, different approaches. And you can almost see how the criticism... Didn't really help. It had a filter on the situation where perhaps, not that it was an easy one, not that anybody did it gracefully, but you know, the Lama had a point. He didn't just uh, get locked into what was going on. He, moved, he was ready to move along, and he didn't have to drag a lot of criticism and, you know, begrudgment about what had just happened. So it's a good story, I think, to just uh, t- keep that in mind. Now, let's see here. Okay, so the story, the story, these stories are a way to illustrate how we can allow ourselves to listen, to and to be still within our own moments and thoughts. And see if there's some other way that we can do things to not just, you know, react right away. Perhaps we can just stop. And this is not a big deal. We don't have to have a meditation cushion or anything. We can just do this anywhere that we find ourselves. We can just stop. Stop and listen. There's a lot to be said for that. Stop and listen. Another thing that I'd like to offer you is a a good section in a book called uh, Stillness Flowing by Ajahn Chah. And uh, again, a lot of you know Buddhist practice, we use the word impermanence a lot. In a way, for me, I've heard that so much over the years that I kind of glaze over it. I go, sure, 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 impermanence. But Ajahn Chah, bless his heart, he translated impermanence in a different way. Remember Mr. Mann's touched on this, but I'm going to fill it out just a tad bit. So he translates the word impermanence into unsure, uncertain, changeful, and indefinite. It's different. Because what that does is it brings the situation at hand to reflect is, are you unsure? You know, I ask, me, are, am I unsure about what I'm doing? I, a lot of times I go, yeah. Or is the other person unsure? Even though they don't strike you as being unsure, are they really um, telling us something that's sure? Is it really, really sure? And I go, well, I don't think so, so much anymore. Is And then the next word, unsure, uncertain. Yeah, so, well, uh, it's supposed to rain today, you know, 100%. Are you certain about that? Well, I don't know. Uncertain. Changeful. This one I like because it's not impermanence, but everything is constantly changing so much so that it's full of change. Everything. Tell me one thing that doesn't change. Yeah. And another one. The, the fourth uh, translation is indefinite. So that can be another one that I. This really quite helpful because oftentimes we feel like we're right or the other person's so right, and I just say, I don't know about that. Indefinite. You know, everything's subject to uh, change. Not nothing's excluded from that. It gives me hope, actually. And this story um, that I'd like to um, bring here is a story, let me find, it's a shorty, is um, a book that I have been reading, Don't Take Your Life Personally by Ajahn Sumedho. How he's a very honest monk and um, he was trying to work through um, some troubles he was having at his monastery with the nuns, and this is in the Theravadan tradition, so there seems to be seemed to be a gulf between what he was trying to do within the monastery and the nuns. So there was conflict, you know, and separate, you know, uh, not real separation, but ideas of you're doing that or you're doing that, and so he said, "Okay, well, it's time now. I don't know what to do about this. There, there is this situation, and I'm willing to." meet with the nuns uh, just the nuns and myself and and see if we can kind of start talking about this so he did that and within that he said I'm going to go to this meeting and I'm not going to um I'm going to listen I'm not going to say this is what I think this is what's right you know he's just simply going to listen and allow his his hurt, because these nuns were sometimes not, they were really critical of him, and it really hurt him to um, have to kind of listen to that. And, of course, he was defending himself by uh, retorting in whatever way he did. He said, I'm not going to do that this time. I'm simply going to listen, allow, and hear what they have to say. So this went on for a while. The nuns were very honest, and it really hurt him. But day, this went on for days, the meeting meetings. And so it was... Uh, you know, he had to. He, sometimes he'd crawl away from the meetings because he was so hurt by what they said. And he said, "I just have to sit with this and see what um, what is here, because I'm unwilling to go back to where I was with this. You know, the separation in this monastery. He happened to be the abbot, or the abbot at the time, too. So he kept doing that and doing that, and the nuns would keep talking, and day after day, you know, it just carried on. And he just said, "Well," You know, he was saying, well, at least I didn't get angry or um, resentful or, you know, retort. He said, you know, that's something. But there was kind of not a feeling like anything was getting particularly better. But over time, what happened, there was just something that was going on on with everybody. And somehow the thing got resolved. You know, it's not like a new contract was uh, there, but it was just like, it, it was almost like everybody had a chance to... to voice their voice, and through that, there was like an okayness, like an, a connection with everybody trying to deal with a difficult situation, and that in itself had some kind of, I don't know how to say it, it wasn't like anybody uh, manipulated this, it just happened. And I think this happens when people can come together in a way where they see that no, the nuns and the, the abbot were not two separate things, but or one side of the group and the other side are not really that different. We're all human, and there is a, a common ground. And within that, you can say, "Oh, well." You can start to say, "Well, well, we can listen to this person. They're just like us, trying to um, sort things out." So I thought that was a good, good uh, example of. Um, what to do in difficult situations. Of course, everybody has to be willing to go through that process together. And that's, that's uh, you know, sometimes that's not always an easy thing. But the more time you can spend together, the more you can talk things out, the more there's a chance that these things will um, come together by themselves. And that's how things can be refreshed in a changeful way. Now let's see here. Now I'm going to tell a story that comes from the Buddha's time. And this story I like. Um, it's it's a a story uh, from the uh, the Pali Canon, but it's I'm going to revamp it to modernize it because it's a little bit hard to relate to. But the the teaching is here, and this story is about a demon, okay? Or it's not only a demon; it's a demon that is called a an, what they call it? Called? An anger eating demon. <laughs> so this demon uh, was roving around and was deformed and he was ugly and you know I don't know but he was looking for uh, you know an opportunity to um, do his stuff and he happened to see there was a seat and the seat happened to be Shakya's seat Shakya was out of the temple but he um, the demon came in and sat down and so the people that were witnessing somebody sit in the Shakya's seat said hey wait a minute you can't do that you know you need to leave, you know, what are you doing here? Just said, grumbled and complained and said, you know, you you need to leave. Well, this was an anger-eating demon. He just sucked it up and said, oh, that's great, I just am going to sit here. (laughs) He was really good at being uh, provocative, right? So he he knew just what to do to get these people to keep saying and grumbling, you know, yeah, you gotta get out of here. This you don't belong here. The the Shakya oh he's gonna come back oh you're gonna be in trouble. He said, Oh fine. You know, he just kept uh feeding into that, into his own greed and his own sense of worthwhileness with these people getting angry at him. Okay. So Shak Shakya comes back and he says and the, the people that were trying to, to get him off this the demon off the seat said uh, yeah, well, look here, look, see what's happened. He's come, and we we can't do anything about it. He's an anger-eating demon, and he's, he's just sitting there. We can't do anything about it. So the Buddha said, oh, okay, well, uh, let's see what we can do here. So what he did is he approached the demon, he knelt down on his right knee on the ground and raising his joined hands in reverential salutation, which we'll, some of you learned this, you know, this weekend is our gosh show. And he said, um, I, just, I, dear sir, am shakya. And he repeated that over and over again, three times. And every time he did that, the demon started to uh, shrink in his puffy self-righteousness. Anger-eating way, and he kept he kept uh, just hearing. He wasn't being fed his anger, right? So what happened is instead of uh, he couldn't maintain his his puffiness, his anger, because it wasn't being fed by others, and his own ideas of what um, what he thought he was, and he just became uh, so uh, he became a demon that was just uh, nothing to to be um afraid of and finally he just disappeared. And that was the and the Buddha so the monk said, Well why why did that happen? How could you do that? And the Buddha said, When I'm angry I don't speak harshly and don't praise my virtues, I keep myself well restrained out of regard for my own good. So it wasn't like the Buddha or the shakya was Um, Feeling comfortable and he was so advanced that he didn't have to bother with uh, his own uh, issues of anger but he had it cultivated enough in himself that he could see that that was not a good thing to do and it wasn't like he was trying to do anything in particular it was just this was his way to um, uh, step into a situation and see what would happen again he didn't know he had no idea but he, he just said I don't when I'm angry, I don't speak harshly. There's two, two different things there. So he was angry, perhaps, but he didn't speak harshly. In other words, that's good teaching, I think, is that we can be, anger can arise in us, but um, there's, we don't have to speak harshly. In other words, just because we're angry, we don't have to um, um, connect with that. In other words, we can speak in a way that is not engaging in that anger. A skill. It takes a skill, and it takes time to learn how to do that, and the trust that it's even uh, doable. And the last story I want to read is another one from the Buddha's time. A different tact. And this one is... um, I love this story. It's called Debt of Gratitude. And it's from the Shobo Genzo, Dogen's uh, work. Um, And it's called, some of you may have heard the story, Threading a Needle for a Blind Monk. When the Buddha was alive, there was a blind monk who nevertheless was able to sew. One day his needle came unthreaded. Then he asked, Is there someone who so longs for the merit from performing good deeds that he would thread this needle for me? At that very moment, the Buddha had just arrived where the monk was and said to him, I am the one who longs for the merit from performing good deeds, so I will come and thread your needle. The blind monk stood up and said, Oh, Buddha, you are already filled to the brim with merit, so why do you say that you long for more? The Buddha responded, my debt of gratitude for that merit is why I long for it. It was the Buddha's way of practicing merit to help others and himself without seeking any recompense. And that's what I feel is the the key there. He didn't have an agenda. He wasn't trying to accumulate good merit. He wasn't trying to clean up any more karma because he probably didn't need to. But at the same time, he wasn't looking for He didn't have an agenda. And I think all of us can relate to situations where we simply just step in. There's a situation that arises, and we just do what needs to be done in a simple uh, kind of clean way, if that makes sense, where you can just do it and not have to um, engage in a, it, in a, in a, in a you know, to try to make sense out of it it's the sheer joy and that's the joy of doing meritorious actions the sheer joy of just doing something that uh, you happen to be in the right place at the right time and you could naturally step in and do something that is um, beneficial to others so that is a debt of merit that is the gratitude that we have for the ability that we all have to um, I don't like to say do good, but to um, do what our heart wants to do anyway and to be more in tune with that and actually give it expression. So I don't know if that's... Because do good can fall into a trap too. I think a lot of people probably recognize that. But this is just simple living, simple joys. And it's uh, something that the Buddha practiced. And he said, somebody said, well, why didn't he offer merit for himself and his own teaching? Here it is, Shakyamuni Buddha. I mean, this is, you know, he's the one that we look to for our, our teaching and, and guidance. And he says, that is not the, the way of a uh, of, uh, of, of Buddhist practitioner. It's, it's a worldly way. So in our practice, we always offer uh, or look to, to others, to the scriptures for the teaching. In other words, if I were to say here, oh, you know, you've got to all listen to me right now because I'm saying, telling you the truth, that is not that is a worldly way. If you can see the trap of that, but to the Buddha would say, he offered merit um, for the treasure of the teaching. So it wasn't like, does that make sense? So that it, it isn't like he was trying to build on his own virtue or goodness or merit. It was just simply that he, the joy of the joy and gratitude of off, of doing simple tasks is um, a way is the way of the dharma it's the way of integrating the dharma into our lives and what a gift that is and i will conclude with a few words from one of our monks who not too long ago gave us a dharma talk and uh, has these words, okay. Inward aspect of practice with stillness and listening is more important than outward action instead of expressing our views. Okay, and the second sentence is better to just be there let go rather than getting wrapped up in our views we get rewired in the dark by this process which takes faith and time when we let go there is a process happening of transformation okay so that's how I'd like to end today thank you